Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Over the last month on Sundays, we've been taking a closer look kind of at the, the middle of the Old Testament uh, of an individual who has more recorded miracles than anybody else in the Bible except Jesus. And that's the Old Testament prophet Elisha. Not Elijah, but Elisha. Elisha was the, the assistant to Elijah, the understudy of Elijah. And, and, and Elisha is an embodiment, a, a foreshadowing clue of the person of Jesus. Everywhere Elisha went, just like Jesus, miraculous things happened. I mean, the record of Elisha's life is filled with extraordinary things because he was yielded to God and, and he, he wanted people to know God. Uh, next week, we're going to look at what may be the weirdest miracle recorded in Scripture. I would bet that there's some who have been in church your entire life and you never heard this story that we're going to talk about next week. It's weird. It's just flat out weird. But it has a lot to say in just a few verses about who our God is and who we are to Him and how He sees us in the midst of everything that we're facing and He's with us. But we'll talk about that next week. Today, we have a more common miracle, one that's familiar, but I think... It's so familiar that sometimes we just look past this miracle because it happens a number of times throughout Scripture, and yet it might, it's probably the most dramatic display of power that we could ever witness in person. Uh, but all along, wherever Elisha went, God was with him. God was using him, and, and, the, and I would assume you're here today, you gather for the church on Sunday, you turn on the live stream because you want to know how can God use you, right? That's part of the reason why you're here today. We're going to see and learn what we can put into practice throughout this story. But before we get there, let me quickly recap. In the first week, we talked about the kind of faith that God calls on our lives to trust him with everything. And, and, and Elisha is God's provider. Elisha gets that. And the question is, he's given a moment where he's asked, do you trust me 100%? All in. Are you all in? And Elisha, in that moment, what's he do? He burns the plow. He has burned the plow faith. He just creates a bonfire, takes his two oxen, he, he smokes them, and then he invites his friends over to have the smoked meat, right? I mean, he, his whole backup plan, he's like, that's it. I could lean on this stuff for my own provision, but I understand God's my provider. He's calling me to this. So it's time to have a party because I'm leaving and I'm all in for what God has for me. Week two, we talked about three united armies in the wilderness of Edom. And they're about to die of dehydration, right? There is no water to be found. The whole military, the animals and livestock they have, it's all going to die of dehydration unless a miracle happens. And God speaks through the prophet Elisha and says, fill this, this uh, valley with ditches, dig ditches, and I'm going to provide the water. Now, before for him to hear that, we talked about kind of a unique thing that happened, right? The harpist came. And so, uh, so I kind of had some fun with that. We even talked about that before service this morning. I'll see it, it, how, how, how they respond. Now, bring me a musician. Oh, thank you, Gretchen. Okay, but your, your whole team didn't get up, right? I suppose that, that's, that Elisha says, bring me a musician, and boom, somebody came to play the harp. And, and so worship team, you got you to work on that, okay, when I say that. Um, week three, we talked about uh, gathering jars every container you could find, because God was going to show that he was the provider for this widow, widow and her two sons, so her sons wouldn't be taken into slavery. 
And it was this idea that God sees us in the midst of our deepest struggle, that God is with us, and that we don't provide for ourselves, but our Savior, our Rescuer, the sovereign ruler who opens doors and closes doors, he's the one that provides for us in this physical world. Today we're going to pick up in the very next verse after that story in 2 Kings chapter 4. encourage you to, ch- to turn there with me. I'm going to be reading from a little bit more of a paraphrase this morning because I like the way the story plays out in the living Bible in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 4 uh, in verse 8. But we're going to hear the family that God brings Elisha to immediately following the widow with her two sons. And this is what verse 8 says. One day... Elisha went to Shunem, okay? Now, I know you know where Shunem is, but just let me give you a a little bit of help. Uh, It's Mount Carmel was that place where Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, uh, uh, you know, Elijah against 850 false prophets, Jezebel doesn't, they want, she wants to see Elijah killed. She wants to prove that Baal is the one true God and Elisha's just like, God, show him who you are and boom, God shows him who he is and 850 prophets die. Like it's this incredible, incredible moment. It's about 20 miles from Mount Carmel. Keep that in the back of your mind. Elisha goes to Shunem, a prominent woman of the city. If you look at the original text, prominent means, yes, wealthy, but influential, trusted, uh, someone people look to for leadership. A prominent woman of the city invited him in to eat. And afterwards, whenever he passed that way in Shunem, he stopped for dinner. She said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy prophet. Let's make a little room for him on the roof. We can put in a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, and he'll have a place to stay whenever he comes by. Now, we may not notice it at first. We could just read through that detail and totally miss the fact that there's something fascinating happening here, something that rarely happens throughout the entire Bible. See, typically when an Old Testament prophet comes into town, or Jesus himself comes into town, or one of his disciples, or one of the apostles, or Paul comes into town, what happens? They are flooded with people that want his attention, that that want want something from him. They, They want an answer, they want a direction, they want help, they need healing, they want a miracle. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament do kings and rulers say, uh, we don't know what to do, we we don't know how to get out of this, so go get the prophet of God, we need to hear from God. Now, a lot of them were evil kings and rulers, and when every other plan failed, then they would finally say, okay, well, I guess we should go back to God then. We should have done that in the first place, but we kind of, we got caught up in ourselves, and so now we're going to turn, what does God have to say, prophet? And so they go and get the prophet when they need something from him. But when things are going along good... When things are going along, it's easy street, and we're getting what we want, and we're providing for ourselves. How often are we just kind of, kind of just distant from what God wants to say or what God wants to do or the answers God wants to give? Here you have a woman, and she doesn't ask anything from Elisha. She recognizes him as a holy prophet. There's some awareness to who he is and the way he acts and, and the way he speaks. But she's not interested in getting something from him. Rather, she wants to do something for him. This is rare in Scripture. She just wants to be generous and kind. And apparently, she has this sense that there's something unique in their culture about Elisha. So she decides she wants to be a blessing to him. At first, she invites him to eat with them. And then whenever Elisha's in their area, he knows he's got an open door and a hot meal waiting for him. This is a pretty big deal for a prophet in the Old Testament. Many of them were homeless. They wandered from town to town following where God was leading them, speaking what God was telling them. But they, their livelihoods were reliant on the hospitality of other people. But then to go even further... This Shunammite woman decides, let's create an addition on our house. On the roof, let's build a little room so Elisha has his own privacy. He has a bed, a table, a lamp. And, and any time he's in the area, he's got a place 
to rest his head. It's fascinating when we look into the New Testament, there's a, a verse that talks about Jesus, that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That there's, that there's no one there offering hospitality often to these people that God was using. So this is a significant gift to someone trying to serve God. What's the lesson here? I think the lesson is we are, we can be the Shunammite woman. God has blessed all of us with stuff that can be used generously to glorify him. I mean, he's given you intellect. He's given you education. He's given you skills and passions. He's given you material possessions, tools, equipment, money, time, energy, health, a home, a car, multiple cars, other things with wheels on them that can be utilized. Maybe you can build stuff. Maybe you're better at tearing stuff apart. Maybe you can fix stuff. Maybe you can create something artistic. Maybe you're a great listener. Maybe you have a gift with kids. The bottom line is all of us have stuff that our generous dad has given us for the purpose of giving away that can glorify him. So then the question is, are we living that out or are we hoarding what's ours for me? The Shunammite woman was living out of a growing awareness of how God could be glorified by anything at her disposal. Verse 11, once when Elisha was resting in the room, he said to his servant Gehazi, hey, tell the woman I want to speak to her. When the Shunammite woman came, he said to Gehazi, tell her that we appreciate her kindness to us. Now ask her what we can do for her. Does she want me to put in a good word for her to the king or to the general of the army? And this is how the Shunammite woman responds. No, I am perfectly content. I need nothing. Well, Elisha follows up with this. What can we do for her? He asked Gehazi. It's like, did she hear you? Did she understand you? Like, ask her, Gehazi, what, what can we do for her? She's done so much for us. I mean, think about this. This is the, the, the understudy of Elijah who asked God for twice the favor and blessing, twice the anointing of Elijah, and God says yes and gives it to Elisha. This is that guy opening the door saying, I'm so thankful for your generosity and kindness. You know, but, but what can we do to you to demonstrate our gratitude? She says, I'm good. There's nothing I need. You know, another statement that I often hear from a certain somebody in this room named Vern is, I'm better than I deserve. I'm better than I deserve. Now, let me give you a spoiler warning here. Elisha, a man of deep faith in God and immeasurable power from God, is about to perform a miracle that won't even become reality for a year, okay? He's about to make a prophetic proclamation about something that's going to occur in a year. But because this woman, whose name we don't know, we just know her as a Shunammite woman, because she's been so kind and generous, God is about to bless her pure heart in a way that only he knows she desires, and in a way that only Elisha can accomplish in the power of God. The truth is, you and I, we, there is nothing we can do to force God's hand. Nothing. There's nothing at our disposal that obligates God to move in our lives. There's promises of God all throughout Scripture we can claim and we can live in. The timeline of God's faithfulness in those things is up to him. God's always faithful to his promises, but there's nothing we can do. If I do this and this and this, then God has to. No, it doesn't work that way. God cannot be manipulated. He's smarter than us. He knows the condition of our hearts. We can't trick him. We can't pin him in a corner. He knows our motivations. And in this woman, it's clear her generosity and kindness are the result of an authentic desire to serve and to glorify God and, and to, to, to meet a need in Elisha's life. And because of that purity of heart in her motivation, God is about to give her something that she actually stopped asking for long ago. What's a dream you've given up on? 
This is a dream she didn't even carry with her anymore. It was so far in the past. It was such a dead dream that it wasn't even a thought anymore. A second takeaway here is that we, can, we can't make God move, but we can make room for him to move, right? Amen. I mean, this family's decision is to make room for God's prophet. What is the, what is the literal, practical thing she's doing? She's like, we're going to put a room on our house so that God can use Elisha here. And he's got a place to rest. We're going to make room for the prophet of God to be able to be utilized in our neighborhood. God wants to do the same in your life and in mine. Are we making room for God to move on a day-to-day basis? We can't trick God into doing what we want. We can't make things happen. But we can make room for him to do what he wants to do. Much later in the Bible, when trying to describe who the Holy Spirit is, Jesus would mention the, the mysterious nature of God's Spirit, and he would even compare it to the wind. So you don't know where it comes or where it's going. You, know, you don't know when it's going to gust up or when it's going to die down. What you do know is if you kind of close your eyes and put your arms, arms out, you can feel the wind move. And anytime someone tries to tell you that there is a guaranteed way to control the wind of God's Spirit, a formula for how you can get God's attention and have him to move in your life, be very, very skeptical. Because normally that's somebody trying to manipulate God to do their purpose and plan, and it never works. This woman made room for God to move, and he was about to move in a big way to bless her and change her life in a way she could never make happen. Elisha suggested, after asking her again, he said, he's just talking to Gehazi, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elisha told him, Gehazi. When she returned, he talked to her as she stood in the doorway. This is what he says. Next year at about this time, you shall have a son. And her response, oh man of God, don't lie to me like that. Think about her response. How dare you? Be careful what you say. Don't don't resurrect that promise that's died so long ago. The third takeaway here is that God can resurrect a dream you thought died long ago. I mean, Elisha opened the the door wide to this woman. What do you want? What do you dream of? What do you need? And what does she say? I'm perfectly content. I need nothing. I mean, she had a chance to go there, but she didn't. The question is why? We we don't really know why. Maybe the dream had faded so long ago she'd kind of completely given up on it. Maybe the way she looked at herself, she's like, I probably don't deserve it. How, many, how often do we look in the mirror at ourselves and we diminish ourselves and we just beat ourselves up and we don't think of ourselves as God thinks of us? We're like, I don't deserve that probably. That's why God never gave it to me. So we justify it's not even worth asking anymore. Maybe, maybe she had a struggle with faith. Maybe she believed God about a lot of things. But when it came to asking him for a son, it was just she, she felt like she didn't have the faith to even ask that, that it wouldn't happen. But maybe she truly had found contentment in life. That even though she didn't get everything she wanted, maybe she truly got to a place where she didn't need anything else to feel complete and whole and fulfilled in life because she'd found that in God, in her faith. Maybe that's why she immediately knew Elisha was so special because there was a, there was a, a, a commonality that she shared with him. Seems like he's contented and, and I've found contentment in my faith and I just want to serve him and I want to help him do what God's called him to do and I have resources to do it. I want to be a blessing to him and and the ministry God's given him. Now, we don't know for sure, but I tend to think it was the last one. I think when she said, I'm perfectly content, I think she'd gotten to a place where even though she didn't get everything she wanted in life, she had the wisdom to realize that there was peace to be found in faith in God 
And because of that place she was in, God was ready to bless her abundantly. You have a dream or an aspiration or a hope that died long ago in you? Something you gave up on? Maybe even something you set fire to or you had a funeral for? It's just like, I hope someday to do this or to be this or to go there. Do you believe God can resurrect what you gave up on? I mean, in the ancient world, we've talked about this so many times, having a son meant everything. A son meant that a prominent, wealthy, generous family like the Shunammite woman's family, which we, we understand from the text that, that she's much younger than her husband. He's going to pass away probably long before her. And without a son, their assets and wealth cannot be passed on to the next generation, their, their, their land. It, it couldn't be maintained. It continued to be built up, built up for generations of the future. This woman doesn't have the provision beyond the next breath of her husband for the future. And yet she doesn't seem to be complaining about it, does she? She doesn't seem to be worrying about it. I'm perfectly content. I have what I need. And into that long-felt, deep desire for a son, she hasn't even vocalized. Elisha speaks and says, next year about this time, you'll have a son. Oh, man of God, she explained, don't lie to me like that. I've dreamed of that. I've hoped for that. I've longed for that moment to hold our little boy in my arms, to see him grow up. Don't tease me. Don't make promises you can't deliver on. But it was true. The woman soon conceived and had a baby boy the following year, just as Elisha had predicted. One day when her child was older, he went out to visit his father, who was working with the reapers. We have this understanding he's still a boy or maybe a teenager. He complained about a headache and soon was moaning in pain. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home to his mother. So he took him home and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. She carried him up to the bed of the prophet, that additional room on the roof, and shut the door. Then she sent a message to her husband, send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the prophet and come right back. Now this one right here, this is a moment of ridiculous faith. Ridiculous faith. The room that she built in the bed that she bought for the prophet of God, this woman takes her deceased son and lays him there. Now get this, this is not the decision or the reaction of a grieving mother ready to bury her son. This is the action of a faith-filled daughter of God who is anticipating a resurrection. That even though he's not breathing anymore, even though he died suddenly, this isn't over yet. And the only reason she puts him there is she wants to go find Elisha. She believes God can do the impossible again. And Elisha, he's not down the street. He's not one town over. He's at Mount Carmel, 20 miles away. And there's not a bus route to get there. There's no subway, right? There, there also, think about this, there would have been no conceivable way for her to even know which direction he was in, right? I mean, Elisha's not, you know, on Twitter every day letting people know what town he's in, you know? There's none of that. This has to be God, a divine intervention to lead her to where he is, almost 20 miles away from her home. The interesting thing, too, is she sends, she sends the servant back out to her husband, Do you know what she doesn't say? Our boy died. She doesn't say that. And and I think that was a detail that if it was communicated would have been included. And I'll prove that in a minute because of what is included seems ridiculous to include. But that is not included. The the kind of the fourth thing to take, take away from this is when we make room for God and he moves, what happens? Our faith increases and our confidence to ask God for the impossible increases. 
The truth is sometimes we don't ask God for impossible things. We don't ask God for miracles. Why? We haven't made room for him to see him show up in the past. We're living off the faith of others. We're not living off our own faith that's increasing because we're, God, will you show up? God, will you do this? God, God, I want to be faithful. I want to create room to, for you to do what you want to do. And then when we take steps of faithfulness to God's leading and he shows up, boom, what happens? Our faith increases. Man, God, you're good. You're real. You're with me. And then our confidence grows and we ask more and we invite more and we make more room and more room and more room for God. So she's leaving home to go find Elisha, the one whose words made possible this gift of her little boy. And she tells her husband, I'm going to find him. Her husband reports back, why today? This isn't a religious holiday. See, he doesn't, I don't think he knows the boy's dead. Why are you going to find Elisha today? The last he knew, his son had a headache. Yeah, send him back to his mom. She'll take care of him. You know, he doesn't need to be out here in the field with us that are working. Why are you going today? This, this isn't a religious holiday. But she said, it's important. I must go. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down for my comfort unless I tell you to. I think, I I didn't add this as a point, but man, how often do we try to slow things down because we're uncomfortable, right? I mean, isn't that true? God's calling us something or God's laying something on our heart. We're like, well, I just don't know. I just need to, I just need to make sure and you know, God, give me three green lights in a row, and then I'll know it's you. God, give me a fourth green light. I never get a green light at the next intersection. If I have a green light there, then God's definitely a part of this, right? It's like, we, ah, this is uncomfortable. I think I need to slow down. I love this statement. I think it's got so much to speak to us about our spirits. Don't slow down from my comfort, unless I tell you to, unless I'm at a point where I can't go anymore. As she approached Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her in the distance and said to Gehazi, look, The woman from Shunem is coming. Run and meet her and ask her what the trouble is. See if her husband's all right. See if the child's well. You see this relationship, this caring of Elisha and this woman? She's been so kind and generous. What's happened? That relationship has been bonded. See if they're okay. What does she tell Gehazi? She lies. Yeah, everything's fine. It's interesting, she doesn't tell Gehazi what's going on. She wants to get to Elisha herself. When she came to Elisha at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away, but the prophet said, leave her alone, something's deeply troubling her, and the Lord hasn't told me what it is. I love this. I think sometimes we want people to think well of us. We want people to to think that we have a close relationship with God, and so sometimes we fake our spirituality and faith. And I love Elisha's honesty and transparency. I mean, this is the guy that hears from God, the guy that people come to so that God can speak through him to them, the guy that knows things going on mysteriously that there's no way he could possibly know, the guy that kings and rulers turn to to find direction to save people's lives, to win battles. And in this moment, he's just humble and honest. And and he's almost more surprised he doesn't know what's going on then he would be surprised to hear from God. Like, think about that. It's more surprising for Elisha to not hear from God than it is surprising for Elisha to hear from God. Wouldn't we say for us it's the exact opposite? It's like, I think I heard from God. Like, I don't believe it. I think God really spoke to me. Like, that's what's surprising to us. Elisha's like, I can't believe I didn't hear from God. I can't believe I didn't know this, right? I mean, that talks about the relationship, the faith he has in God, and faith that keeps increasing. He's not trying to frame his reaction with her with groups of people around him, probably. He's not trying to get them to think that he's a holy man and think he's got everything figured out. He's just being real. He's, he's like, I'm a flawed, limited man. He's like, I've been called to God and serve him this way, but I haven't got a clue what's going on this time. Because the power at work that does the impossible is not something Elisha has. It's what God has through me. 
So I'll just be honest about it. Verse 28, then she said, it was you who said I'd have a son, and I begged you not to lie to me. And he said to Gehazi, quick, take my staff. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Hurry, lay the staff upon the child's face. But the boy's mother said, I swear to God that I won't go home without you. So Elisha, you can see his compassion. He returns with her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff upon the child's face. Now this is where we learn that it might be pretty cool to be the assistant of a prophet in the Old Testament, but it's got a tough job description associated with it, right? We're almost 20 miles away. Gehazi, you go before us. Get there as fast as you can. Did he run? We don't know. Did he take an animal? We don't know. We just know there's not a subway, right? There's not a quick way to get there. There's no, you know, Scotty, beam me up. There, there ain't none of that. It's, he can't call and say, hey, how are things going there? And he, you know, he can't check GPS for restaurants along the way. It's, man, get there. Travel the 20 miles and put my staff on the kid's face. Why his face? Like, that's the question. Why his face? Like, that's just weird. That's different. Is there a reason? <laughs> now, when he gets there, probably not even till the following day, so, so think about how long it took for her to get to Elisha 20 miles and then to, to find him and then, and then Gehazi to get back to Shunem 20 miles. How long has this, bo- this boy's body been laying in this bed? He gets there with the staff and he goes to put that staff on the kid's face like he was told to do. Now, do you wonder what Gehazi was expecting to witness? I mean, he's seen Elisha do miracles, right? Like, if it was me, I'm like going to put that staff on the kid's face, like lay it down across his body with it on his face. And, and uh, you wonder what he was thinking about? Like through that 20-mile journey, he's probably building some anticipation, some anxiety welling up within him. What's going to happen? Like when I put it on his face, are his eyes going to open all creepy-like, you know? Like freak me out? Like am I going to kind of just in the stillness of that room, I'm just going to kind of put that staff on his face and <gasps> he just breathes like this big sigh and it just shocks me. Is his body going to start convulsing? Is he going to levitate off the bed? You know, what's going to happen? Is this going to freak me out? Am I going to run out of the room? You know? But when Gehazi does what Elisha said, nothing happened. There was no sign of life. Now, if that's me and I'm Gehazi, I'm like, crap, what did I do wrong? <laughs> what did he say? Is there something I missed? What step did I, was I supposed to spin around and then put it on his face? You know, do the hokey pokey, put your right foot in, you know. That's what I would have thought. Oh, I screwed this up. <laughs> and to me, this is a story that gives me great confidence in the accuracy of the Bible as God's word. Because if you were an editor and someone pushed Second Kings across your desk and you read these couple of verses, he traveled and he put the staff on his face and nothing happened. Like you'd be like, let's edit that out. Yeah, let's put that aside. You know, uh, let, let's, let's just kind of leave that alone. Um, but no, see, God wants that silly detail in there for a reason. The fifth thing he wants us to know is sometimes we do our best with faith in God, but our best isn't what makes miracles happen. Elisha told his assistant to do something, but it wasn't necessarily something God told Elisha to do. Elisha's just trying to be a faithful servant. He's just trying to do everything he possibly can to make room for God to move. He can't make God move. He's trying to make room for God to move. So now Gehazi, after a rush journey some 20 miles away, he puts the staff and nothing happens. Now what's he got to do? Does he pull out his cell phone and text uh, Elisha, hey, I think I've missed step one or step three. Could you send that to me again because I think I did something wrong? No, Gehazi doesn't have a cell phone, does he? 
he has to leave the house and start the journey back towards Mount Carmel and hope to connect with Elisha and the Shunammite woman somewhere along the way. He returns to meet Elisha and told him, the child is still dead. When Elisha finally arrives in Shunem, now, how much time has passed? Is this three days, four days? Is this a week? We, we don't know. But this is quite a distance by foot. The child is, is, you know, as dead as dead can be, laying there on the prophet's bed. Elisha goes in, he shuts the door behind him, and begins to pray to the Lord. Then he lays upon the child's body, placing his mouth upon the child's mouth, his eyes upon the child's eyes, and his hands upon the child's hands. I think we're just to give, this is, this is written narratively to give us an, an, just an illustration to picture what happened. And the child's body began to grow warm. Then the prophet went down and walked back and forth in the house a few times. Returning upstairs, he stretched himself again upon the child. Now, I read this and I'm just like, I think Elisha's just kind of making this up as he goes. You know, he didn't walk in and say, boy, get up. He, he didn't walk in and kind of put the staff on the boy's face a couple of times and be like, wow, I thought that would work. You know, he, and, and I think this is a reminder to us that following Jesus will never be a profession. It'll always be a practice. We don't entirely know what God's going to do or how God wants to do it. We don't entirely know what he wants us to do in the moment or in the situation or in the relationship. We just want to create room for God to move. And as he laid out on the boy a second time, this time the little boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Then the prophet summoned Gehazi. Call her, he said. And when she came in, he said, here's your son. She fell to the floor at his feet and picked up her son and went out. The last thing I think we could take away from this is that God's greatest blessings are often found in places of deepest pain. I mean, this woman, when offered to be blessed by Elisha with whatever she needed, she, she was content. She thought there was nothing that a homeless prophet of God had to offer her. She was prominent, influential, wealthy, well-respected, but yet she had a heart of, gra- of kindness and generosity. And both miracles happened at the point of her pain. The first, the miracle of a son, reveals that the grief of that dream that had died so long ago that she wanted desperately, she'd given up. She knew she didn't have the, that, that her power, her wealth, her influence wasn't enough to give her a, a baby boy. But in the miracle of resurrection, it met her in the same pain. It reveals that, that her wealth, her influence, her power wasn't enough to make her boy rise back from the grave. There's so many places in the Bible where the deception of wealth and power and influence are revealed. See, power and wealth and influence, they trick us into thinking that we can, we got this. We can do it on our own. We can do it without God. We don't say that, but we live that way. People who feel they're rich in possessions don't really feel like they need to depend on God with their future. Oftentimes they think, well, I've earned this. This is mine. I get to do with it what I want. It's not what the word says. And they start to buy into this temptation that they're not overly concerned about obeying God because they've accomplished so much. People who are rich in talents usually don't depend on God to work in and through them because they can, they can feel pretty confident in what they can accomplish. They've seen themselves make an impact and so they don't have to be as, as trusting in what God can do through them because they can lean on their own richness of talents and abilities and skills. People who feel they're rich in good works that on the whole, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I treat people well. They don't really have to depend on God. They don't, really, they don't really have to throw themselves on the mercy of God for their sin because they don't see their sin the way that God does 
I'm a pretty good person compared to him. I'm a pretty good person compared to her. I mean, look at that train wreck. I'm way above that. But no, see, the person that's rich in good, good works thinks they're always trying to earn something with God. and That because they've done God good, they get good. They deserve good. And the only time they get upset with God is, well, God, I've done all these things. And you aren't giving me what I'm asking for. There's a, my, my life is falling apart. Being rich always leads us to thinking we can be independent of our creator, independent of our savior, that we can save ourselves, that we can provide for ourselves and we don't need the provider. But eventually reality shows us it's an illusion. No matter how rich she thought she was, she couldn't give herself a son. No matter how talented she, ha- she was, what really mattered most to her, that she would have traded everything for, died suddenly one morning. In a couple of hours, no matter how generous and kind she had been, how good she had been, so Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, the best of us are still, sta- still stained by sinful rebellion and deserve hell without a Savior offering himself in our place. See, oftentimes it's not our weaknesses that keep us separated from the power of God. It's actually our strengths that keep us separated from the power of God. That's what keeps us distant from God because we become self-reliant. We become independent, not dependent. Sometimes, like this woman, God can use the things in your life that bring suffering and grief, pain to the deepest degree, something you can't overcome, something you don't have the power or money to change. God can use that deepest pain to accomplish his greatest work. You know, there's another resurrection story involving the prophet Elisha that we're not going to have time to dive into in full in this little mini-series. And, and, and maybe you don't even know it's in the Bible, but, but I wanted to speak of it because I just think it's a powerful story uh, that we're, of another resurrection connected to Elisha, but this one is a little weirder. Oh, let me say this too. It's actually the, the story in Scripture the song Graves into Gardens is based on. You turn graves into gardens, the God who can do the impossible. It's based on this story in 2 Kings chapter 13. Um, and and it, it, it's a, a story of resurrection connected to the prophet Elisha. But get this, this is years after Elisha has died. I know what you're thinking. How can Elisha be a part of a resurrection years after he's died? Well, here's the story. There's a couple of guys and they're, they're carrying a corpse to be buried in a tomb. And uh, so that means, you know, the, the understanding here is that there's a dead body, probably, you know, they're carrying it on a stretcher, something like that. And, uh, and it's, it's involved, it's prepared, it's wrapped, ready for burial. So the, the, the funeral procession is over, everybody's gone home, everybody's grieving the loss of this guy. And all of a sudden, these two guys who have this task of burying this, this dead, dead man, all of a sudden, they hear, they see Moabite invaders. It was common for, for those on the border in Moab, they would come in and they would steal from people. They would ransack villages and towns. And so all of a sudden, they see, oh no, there's Moabite invaders back. So what do they do? The nearest tomb close to them, they just kind of toss the body in that tomb and get out of there to escape with their lives. Well, guess where they toss it? In Elisha's tomb. And as soon as the dead corpse hits the bones of Elisha, it comes back to life. Like, that's crazy. The power of God at work in this man, long after he's dead, can resurrect what's dead. The worship team's going to come up and we're going to close with the song, No Longer Slaves. No longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. We don't, often we have a choice between faith and fear. We want our faith to be inspired. Another story of God doing an impossible thing, parting the waters so they could walk through on dry land. I want you to understand the story we've talked about today, it's not a formula of how we can get what we want from God. 
This is not a story about, well, if you're good and kind and generous like the Shunammite woman, then God will give you things that you've given up on. No. See, Elisha doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what to do, but he knew God was merciful in ways that we never deserve. So he kept pursuing a merciful rescuer for a rescue. This story is meant to inspire our faith, to understand a little more deeply who God is and that we can trust him in our deepest pains. Not that he will always work the miracle we hope for. I mean, think about it. This boy eventually dies again, doesn't he? Like he's brought back from the grave. We have no idea the rest of his life. Sometime later, he had to die. Sometime later, he had to experience people close to him. He had to grieve the loss of his father, his mother. He might have gotten sick. He might have gotten married, lost his wife. He might have lost a kid himself. I mean, the the survival rate of a baby in the ancient world was very, very low. This guy was going to have a lot more suffering. He was going to have a lot more grief, a lot more pain. And when it seems like there's no way through what you're facing, our God is the God who can split a sea wide open and create dry ground so we, his children, can walk through it. So six things. God has given me stuff that can be used generously to glorify him. We can't make God move, but we can make room for God to move. God can resurrect a dream that you thought died long ago. That when God moves in our lives and we create that space for him to move, And we see it and we witness it. Our faith goes up. Our confidence in God goes up. Sometimes we do our best in faith to God. We don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if God's going to show up in this way. But it isn't about what we bring to the table. It's about him and just creating that space. It's not our best that makes miracles happen. And God's greatest blessings in our lives, when we look back, often be found in places of deepest pain because it's then we're most desperate and reliant on him. And when things are going along easy, it's easy to be distant from him. Take just a moment, those six things. And I want to ask you to, is there one that God is speaking to you today? One of those six things. Taking six things from this room and trying to put them into practice is impossible. I'll be the first to tell you that. But I believe in one of these six, God's saying something profoundly to you. He wants to speak. He wants to show you something. He wants you to know he sees you where you are. He he wants you to know that he sees what you're going through. He wants you to know that maybe it's something your kid or or your your, your sister or brother or family member or friend, a co-worker that your heart is just grieving for. He sees what they're going through. He's there with them. He's, He's inviting them to cry out to him, to turn to him, to yield to him, to make room in their life for him to move. It's when we make room for him to move that miracles can take place. Lord Jesus, I don't know what you want to say to each of us. I just pray, Lord, you make it clear that we don't just leave this room today. We don't just turn off this live stream today with a nice idea or a good thought. But God, in these six things, you've given us an action plan to make room for you to move in our lives, to reshuffle some priorities. Maybe, God, it's, it's to be more generous with the stuff you've given us. Not to be generous, to be kind to somebody, but to glorify you. Maybe it's remembering the times you moved in the past so that our faith right now can go up, so our confidence in you can go up. Maybe it's a dream that's long died and you want to resurrect it in us today. 
Maybe it's God. Some of us are, are paralyzed by fear. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. And, and you're just saying, hey, just trust me. Just, just walk it out. Sometimes do your, just do your best in faith to God and, and watch me do what only I can do. And maybe somebody's going through the deepest pain and they're trying to find purpose in it. God, you're just saying, this is the moment where you're going to invite me closer than you've ever been before. I didn't make this happen, but I can use it if you'll let me. I can use it if you'll let me. So Lord, would you help us to let you, to let you do whatever you want to do as we choose to be who you're calling us to be in these moments. In your awesome name we pray.
Father God, may we not live with an increasing fear because of what circumstance we're in. May we live life with an increased faith that chooses to be generous even in our pain the way Jesus was generous in his pain to lay it all out for us. Knowing that that is the greatest way we can make room for you to do the impossible right in front of us. Give us that kind of courage, God, that kind of trust. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.